0: On the new podcast American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream, like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I I have been working really hard to try to find that forgiveness piece and I, it, I was just hitting that constant roadblock and, and it I remember it so clearly. I was literally pulling into my parking spot at home from work and I was almost getting ready to turn off the car. And for the very first time that I had heard it, Letter to You came on. And I stopped and I sat right there in that parking spot and I listened to that song and I just absolutely lost it. I started absolutely sobbing the entire song once I picked up on what was really what he was saying which didn't take very long to do I literally just cried the entire song and I knew that everything that I had been asking my higher power to do to give me the strength to show me some sort of aha moment like you're ready now you can finally do this it absolutely came at that time and I I went back in and within a couple hours I was on my computer and I literally bowed my head and prayed and I took just exactly, the song was playing through my head and I took all of those tears, all of that anger, all of that pain. I put good parts into that letter to him too. I put every single thing that I had into the letter to this man. And when I got done, I just cried all the way through it.
2: crown of mongrel trees, I pulled that bothersome thread. I got down on my knees, grabbed my pen, and bowed my head. Tried to summon all that my heart finds true, and send it in my letter to
3: you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. I'm always excited to have anyone join me on the podcast. I am always thrilled that people are not kind enough to spend time out of their busy lives sharing their story. But I'm especially excited tonight to talk about a journey of forgiveness, and compassion, and ultimately love. Sarah, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: Yeah, we have, you have a story to tell, and I think it's an amazing one. But to start out with, tell us a little about yourself.
1: I was, I was born and raised in Alabama, actually was raised on Jimmy Buffett. Believe it or not, my parents are big parrot heads, along with Springsteen fans. So I had the mix of, of both worlds. And I, once I grew up, I took a, the wrong turn, got into some substance use for a little while and then managed, thank God, to find my way back. And Bruce has been one of the guiding lights, I, guess, I should say, and bringing me back to everything.
3: Good. I am. Are you doing well now?
1: I am, yes. Good,
3: very nice. There is a Jimmy Buffett, Bruce Springsteen connection that he was on 60 Minutes, Jimmy Buffett was, and he was talking about that both he and Bruce were talking and they were comparing that they both made breakfast for their kids. And he says, in the Springsteen household and the Buffett household, we're just the pancake makers. That's all we are. <laughs> and I, I just love that about them. And that's that's a fun duo. I would, I would see a Jimmy Buffett Bruce Springsteen concert in a minute. So I would be happy at that double bill.
1: Absolutely.
3: So growing up in Alabama, you shared already so they listened to jimmy buffett you said a little bit of bruce what other kind of music did your family listen to
1: oh it was pretty much open mostly though a lot of buffett is what i remember growing up more than anything else okay pretty consistently
3: yeah coconut telegraphs one of my favorite albums of his and so that's a good memory so, can you remember when you first discovered Bruce, and if you can you articulate why his music spoke to you, Sarah?
1: Sure. So, for myself, I discovered him, I would say very recently in his grand scheme of his music, about five six years ago. Okay, um, I was. <laughs> In a time in my life, I was really searching for anything that I listened to needed to have meaning in the words and a story being told, and I needed to be able to relate to it. And I was flipping through XM when I found East Street Nation, and I was flipping through and the river had just started. And it was the harmonica playing. And my grandfather always played the harmonica everywhere we went. He had that thing out all the time. Used to embarrass us when we were kids. And it is one of the most cherished memories that we have now. And it made me just stop right there. And once I got done, once he got done with the river, I was totally hooked. And that station has barely changed from my car even to this day. (laughs) So then I wanted to start educating myself. I wanted to know more and I wanted to know more about him and the the meaning behind so many of the songs that he does and it all just spiraled from there. But the the river, it gives me, I was able to get a very clear picture in my mind that day of exactly where he was taking us in that song. And that was something that I was just really searching for at that time. And I just locked right onto it and then fell absolutely in, in love with his music.
3: Once you discovered it sounds like you did a deep dive going through the back catalog, other albums, other shows, right?
1: everything I could find, <laughs> yeah. which is a lot so I yes. was soaking it all in like a sponge. I just wanted more
3: have I know that one of the we got connected via Donna at Bruce funds, so I always preface this with the amount of times. You've seen Bruce isn't a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are, but have you been able to see him yet?
1: I was very lucky to see him once when on this tour, when he came to DC, Okay, we were up on the very top and it was, I'm, I'm afraid of heights, but once his, once the lights came out and they came on stage, I didn't sit down and moved and danced the entire time. All of my fears went away and I was strictly focused on what they were doing. And I'll be honest with you for the little less than three hours, it was probably one of the best three hours I've had in many years. It was amazing.
3: So I'm going to get on my soapbox just a little bit, Sarah, and then I promise I'll get off, <laughs> but you are a reason why I get irritated at fans who oh, He's not changing the set list. And I'm like, do you realize how many people this tour have never had a chance to hear him in the E Street Band? And many people will only see him one time this tour. And just talk about first world problems. All right? Thank (laughs) you for sharing that story. I appreciate
1: it. It was the most amazing time of my life. I was almost like on this high for a week afterwards. I was just on this bubble. I was so happy and I felt better. It was like he had this magic in the arena that came down when he came out on stage. And I cried through a lot. I cried through a lot of it. I had no voice for a while. Like it was just, it was amazing. I'm a very shy person. So even the fact that I would stand up and dance like a fool and not care who was around me, like it actually says a lot for what he can do.
3: Yeah, I was, I was at the February 14th show in Houston and my listeners know this, but my brother died February 13th and there were tears with Letter to You and I'll See You in My Dreams, that that really struck me. And, and I think it's, and we're going to get to that story, but I, I think it's amazing that in his 70s, he releases a studio album that is still so powerful, that is so touching, And in a sports metaphor, he hasn't lost his fastball at all.
1: Yeah, I think he's even better. He really just gets better and better. And I know I've heard a lot of people talking about his voice changing. And you can hear it, but I just think he's absolutely phenomenal.
3: There was a, I can't remember which comedian, and it may be Joe Bowl, but someone did, was able to do the six stages of Sinatra like when they mimic Sinatra how his (laughs) voice changed over the years and I think to that certain degree as a vocalist his voice may change in age but it's still got so much power yeah
1: I think it almost makes him more powerful now because he's not sounding the same as he was he can do completely different music as we see from his from his soul album just yeah. absolutely phenomenal and his voice now it just plays a pivotal role in that being so successful and i i love that album
3: yeah i do too i just thought it was so much fun and just it was i i love the idea that he just felt like doing it so he did it and just and just gives us
4: that gift
0: Listen now, go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So you have shared your story to multiple people. So I'd like to start at the beginning and talk about the circumstances of your your grandmother's death, if you don't mind. And let's walk through that stage.
1: Absolutely. So, in 2001, I was 20 years old and almost 21, and living up in Maryland, where I live now. I had come up here for college, and got a phone call that my grandmother had passed away. You, that's expected, right? Even when it's unexpected, it's she was in her 70s, so. It- I just, my mind went to a heart attack or something natural, right? Your mind just cannot wrap your, it it cannot make sense of anything, that anything tragic had happened. And when I got back to Alabama, I was told that she was was murdered and very brutally as Mm. well. And within a few days we discovered who it was and it was somebody that was in a relationship with my aunt for a very long time. So somebody that knew us very well, vacations, holidays, we spent a lot of time with this person. So it just, you know, when you lose anybody, it, it really hurts. It really hurts. But to lose somebody in such a tragic way, and she was, it's not just a grandmother, but she was so sweet. She was so many people's best friend. We have a huge family and there wasn't one person in our very large family that was not totally shattered by this. And so I moved out back down to my grandma, my grandfather's house for probably a couple months to try to help him process through, um, took some time off of school and it was just my grandfather and I for quite a few months in the house where she was killed in. And It did something to me. I tried to put this front on to help him. Like I was strong and I was okay, but it was the night times where I just, I literally lost a piece of me every single night there. And when I came back to Maryland, my substance use got really bad. I did not know how to process. I know this now, right? But I didn't know how to process my loss and how to process my grief. And so I just did anything I could to try to forget it. And that lasted quite a long time. I did get sober when I was third, 31. Got sober. Enough, so I'm coming up on 10 years now, luckily. <laughs> but in, in that time, I lost connections with my family. I lost everybody. And I had so much hatred in my heart. So, so much hatred. I literally could not say the man's name at all. I, I couldn't talk about him. I couldn't see the object that he used to kill her. Could not be around me in my house. I, the substance that that he used, that made him kill her. I couldn't be anywhere near this. Though in active addiction, I was around everything. <laughs> I just thought I had my lines where it was just so traumatizing and such a trigger to me. But when I got sober, I started to work on myself. That's what we're taught to do. We're taught to dig deep inside and do everything we can to better ourselves. And I've done a lot of work on myself, but the one thing I could not let go was that just hatred and raw anger that I had for this man. And I was so tired of carrying it around with me. I just,
2: mm -hmm. yeah, no,
3: I just was going to ask. So. We had and this is very minor, but. When my dad was in Vietnam, so this was back in the 60s. My wife, gosh, talk about 40 and slip. My mother was working as a waitress in a small diner and she became friends with another waitress and she ended up coming to live with us. And she was, she helped us with school projects. She helped everything. And one day we came home and she had robbed us blind, had just taken everything in the house. Mm -hmm. And when my mom had always said, the question she'd wanna ask is why? Why did you do this? Because we would have given you anything we had if you had needed it that's a very small thing but the betrayal of someone you know and i certainly don't want to try to make things worse because a someone dying in a violent way is going to be horrible no matter what but i hear from you the idea that you knew the perpetrator you Mm. the family knew him and it was someone they trusted, had affection for,
0: mm-hmm.
3: was part of the family. I can understand how that would have upset you, everyone, and especially someone as young as you were. And it sounded like you were very close to your grandmother.
1: Yes, very close, yeah. very very
3: close. Yeah,
1: is the, the betrayal was one of the hardest parts as well. Before he was found to, just to put how close he was, he went to movies with my aunt. Nothing was wrong. That kind of betrayal. You don't get much closer than that. Yeah. Um, so it was very hard. It was very hard to process and accept that for all of us.
3: Were you involved, were, was it a long trial or was it, I mean, was the process of getting quote unquote closure long in that during that process
1: it took about two years before he was sentenced the last trial that the first one was ended in a mistrial and so we had to do it all over again Mm. and the last trial was approximately two weeks long and he was sentenced in 2000 and 2004 technically by the time he was sentenced so it it was a long time
3: and at this point it's easy to second guess but Mm. There's no help there in the family. There's no one trying to give advice or help you through your transition. And I can imagine I, my grandmother died of natural causes. My grandfather died of natural causes. And for the longest time, I could not go to their home.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: My uncle ended up, inheriting the house and my mom and my aunt like they were three siblings they were all fine with that right they each they were okay uncle raymond getting the house and for the longest time i could not even think about walking into that house without grandma and grandpa and and there was a family reunion and i went to i had to go to the house and i was surprised that I didn't have anger anymore. I was just like, oh, this was my grandparents' house, and now somebody else is living in it, Mm -hmm. and it has made it their own. It's okay, right? Mm -hmm. So I say that in I had no trauma except the idea of losing my grandparents, who I adored. The idea of you having to be in that house where it happened I'm not a big believer in ghosts, but I believe there has to be spirits there in your mind, right?
1: Oh, my gosh. It's so it's funny you say that because at nighttime, I would literally go right close to where she had passed. And I would just break down night after night. And there was two very distinct nights where I will tell you, I swear I felt arms around me. I felt it I could smell her not all the time but but two two times in particular and I it helped me whether it was all in my mind or whatnot I don't know I just know it helped me and it's what I needed right then and there and allowed me to continue to be there a little bit longer until he needed me
3: Um, so I also I want to talk about grief because and once again I'm if I'm talking too much about myself, I'm sorry, but I I just, I'm trying to, I'm putting myself in your situation and I lost my grandmother first. And so we were all strong for our grandfather Mm -hmm. and my mom. Then we lost grandpa really strong for my mom. Then we lost my father
2: Mm -hmm.
3: and We're all there being there. And then I lost my stepfather and I I loved both men. And my mom is the only one of that generation left. And I've often thought that when she passes that I think it will all come into me because I won't have to be strong for anyone else. That Mm -hmm. my sister and I have talked about this, that, that, It will be time for the grandkids and everyone else to be strong for us, even though they are going to have this great sorrow on their part. It just feels like I've you got to put it away because I got to be strong for them. And so you were doing that for your grandfather, living him there, weren't you?
1: Yeah, that was the only thing I I thought about doing It, it. As you pretty much just described here, you just don't think about doing anything different. Yeah, it's what we're supposed to do as a family and we're supposed to take care of each other. And he was hurting more than I was. You think, and I'm sure he was, but that's where my mind went. He has to be hurting more than I do. This is his wife of 50 plus years. He's had three children with and had this entire life with. And and I didn't want to lose him. I didn't want anything to happen and lose him.
3: When you made the decision to go back to Maryland, were you going back to school?
1: I was. Yeah.
3: yeah. So you started self medicating? You talked about substance abuse. Is that's very clearly what you were doing. After the fact, it's clear you're like, oh duh. Yes. But at the <laughs> time you didn't Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's exactly what I was doing. Oh, you guys yeah. just it. Is partying being in my early 20s and this is what you do in college I found a million reasons to to justify it but I just took it to a whole nother level and that's what I do I take things to a whole nother level
3: is there I know there was a road to Damascus moment we're going to talk about in a minute but was there that moment that helped you turn towards sobriety
1: there was. Yeah. My children were taken away. I have two kids. And they were young at the time, and they were taken into foster care, and I was homeless. Um, we had Absolutely no place to go. And my husband's way of seeking help was going to jail pretty much voluntarily with what ended up happening, and I went into treatment. At first, it was out of complete desperation, and I do not know how to live on the streets. Like, I just yeah. don't. I don't know what to do. Sure. So, It started out of desperation for for some safety. And then I, I got to sober up a little bit and I started to detox and I started to feel a little bit better. And that cloud started to lift from my mind that had been there for so long. And I I woke up and I remember looking around, I remember that the first time I was able to get up from my severe detox in the treatment center and I honestly I had not showered in days. It was horrible. It was so sick. And I went into the bathroom and I was so weak. I could barely stand up. And I remember I was holding onto their sink there and my arms were just absolutely shaking. And I, my face was so sunken and I looked so bad, but I was starting to feel a little bit better even through all that. And I remember I looked into the mirror and I told myself right then and there that I would not do this again. I would not put not only my family, but myself through what I've been doing. And I, I promised myself right then and there and September 3rd will be 10 years. Knock on wood. So.
3: Yeah. One day at a be, time. Right. At and a time. Did, yes. We're yeah. not there
2: yet. <laughs> no,
3: that's right. Yes. I understand what you're saying. And. How. What are some of the things that you think made a difference in this road to sobriety that in the past didn't? What are some of the things that you did that were healthy for yourself to help you make this important change?
1: For one, I finally took the time to focus on myself first and foremost, and not everybody else, which I had spent my entire life up until then putting my focus on everybody else. And my kids were gone, my husband was gone, and I had this time to, to focus on me and find out who I really was inside. And I spent quite a few years alone doing that. Anything and everything that I could do to dig into myself, and that's one of the reasons music became such an important role to me is because I really resonate with music and when I can connect to it it, it does something to me it, it, it makes me better or it starts to heal me from different things depending on what it is right there's so many amazing songs out there that are so powerful um, and once I make that connection to it it heals a little piece of me and just throughout the next few years after that I honestly just did just that whatever I needed to do to find myself to find my voice again and try to figure out who was I because I didn't know mm-hmm. I've been using for so long and I I started very young I started even younger than when it got really bad so I hadn't I had no idea who I really was anymore
3: so there are moments in life that rang true and one of them that really has stuck with me and I have no idea why, but it was a Sunday when at the Baptist church, we were attending at the time and the pastor started, was telling the story where after Christ had risen, when it's the, do you love me, Peter, then feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Do you feed my sheep? And his point that Reverend Skinner made is that the reason he asked Peter the third time is the first one, go, oh, yeah, I love you, of course. And then the second time, yeah, of course I love you. And the third time was, yeah, I love you, but. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that sticks with me because when you're honest with yourself and with your conscience or your guide or your spiritual leader is when you can change so was there a little bit of you yes I'm working on myself and yes I'm going to put myself first and I am going to do healthy choices but don't ask me to talk about forgiveness Mm -hmm. with this man who took everything away from me and it would be very easy to go if not that then this wouldn't have happened mm-hmm. and i realized probably they taught you no you can't blame someone else but in the back of my mind if i were you i'd be going yeah i hear all that but the reality is if this person i loved and trust did not betray us did not kill my grandmother i don't know if this path is where i would have gone talk, sure, to me, talk to me a little bit about that sarah
1: No, absolutely. For seven years, I was the one that was my butt. I can do everything that I'm told to do. I can find myself. I can do all this, but I cannot forgive. But I cannot release this anger. I deserve to have this anger. I deserve to be mad at him and to have this grief and, and this hatred. And it got towards the end of the seven years, it got to be too heavy. But for the longest time, that was absolutely my butt. I needed to
3: hold on to that. Sarah, and we all have those, the idea that to, I do anything for love, but I won't do that, to quote meatloaf, right? And this, that's too much. That is unreasonable. And I love and I know the answer to this, but my audience doesn't, unless they've read the articles, you had a literal road to Damascus moment where you were listening to surprise a Springsteen song and it changed your life. Please tell me that story.
1: No, it absolutely did. I, I had been working really hard to try to find that forgiveness piece. And I I was just hitting that constant roadblock. and, And it I remember it so clearly. I was literally pulling into my parking spot at home from work. And I was almost getting ready to turn off the car. And for the very first time that I had heard it, Letter to You came on. And I stopped and I sat right there in that parking spot. And I listened to that song and I just absolutely lost it. I started absolutely sobbing the entire song once I picked up on what was really what he was saying which didn't take very long to do I literally just cried the entire song and I knew that everything that I had been asking my higher power to do to give me the strength to show me some sort of aha moment like you're ready now you can finally do this it absolutely came at that time and I I went back in and within a couple hours I was on my computer and I literally bowed my head and prayed and I took just exactly the song was playing through my head and I took all of those tears, all of that anger, all of that pain. I put good parts into that letter to him too. I put every single thing that I had into the letter to this man. And when I got done, I just cried all the way through it. And when I got done and sat back and reread it, Like I could, I could literally just picture letter to you playing itself out in that letter that I wrote. And I, I did start to feel better. It wasn't instantaneous. Oh, this is amazing. But I, for the first time, I felt tremendously better. I was able to say his name. His name is Jimmy. I said it right then and there for the first time since everything had happened. I said his name and that night I was able to pray for him and my sponsor had been asking me to do that for seven years (laughs) and I couldn't get it out and I was able to do it that night. Um, And and I I decided to mail it just like he said, I I sent that letter to you and I and signed my name true. I love that part too. I signed my name true because my hand was literally shaking. I had to type it out because I just had to get everything out of me as fast as I could. When it came to the signature part, I, I signed it and i mailed it out to him and i felt so much better but it was about 2 weeks later when i got a letter back from him and i didn't know if i would or not when i read his letter that well, was bef- that moment
3: before when you see the letter was there fears and doubts to quote right were you was mm-hmm. it were you concerned about reading this
1: It sat on my kitchen counter for about three or maybe four days, just sitting there every time I'd walk past it and I'd see it and seeing his handwriting, seeing the stamp from the prison and and not knowing what was inside there. And um, finally, after a few days, my husband looked at me and said, I'll read it first because he wanted to make sure I wasn't going to get hurt. He just wanted to make sure there was nothing really bad, no gloating or whatever could have been in there.
3: Right. And
1: he read it. And when he set it down, I knew it was okay for me to read when I needed to. And and that night I did. I went upstairs to to my room alone and I read that letter and cried once again a lot. And that is literally when all of my anger left me. Getting that letter back from him um, and seeing how much he had changed was very evident to me already and how remorseful he was and hearing about some of the things that he had gone had done over the years to try to better himself. And coincidentally enough, I had not told him in that first letter about the song bringing me to do this. Of course, we later talked about it, but not that first time. On his first letter, he sent me a song that he wrote within the first year or two that he was in prison. And he said in it, sing this to the sing this to the tune of my hometown by the boss. And he had no idea that it was literally. So there Bruce was again. Wow. There was again. And so that was. And I just, I remember that feeling of literally how I could feel everything leave me. I had no anger for him at all at that point in time. And I was actually floored that I didn't. I actually had to catch myself and be like, don't I have something? <laughs> Let me sure. find a little bit of anger in there for him. But it. It just wasn't, it wasn't there anymore.
3: Yeah. I I told my son and wife that we were going to talk tonight and they both were like, Oh, wow. That's, that sounds powerful. And my wife said, I I don't know if I could ever forgive anyone who hurt you or your dad. She's talked to Chris and I said, yeah, I said, that's the story. That's the redemption story and the, the forgiveness story because how do you forgive the unforgivable? Mm-hmm. And and the I have had struggles in my life, right? And I will tell myself it's easy to have faith when everything's going well. Mm-hmm. Are you gonna have faith when things aren't going well, right? Mm-hmm. Did you it does not sound like you had a long term plan. You just the emotions and the just you're like, I'm just going to open up my veins, pour out my affection, mm-hmm. pour out my sorrow and my things. When you got the letter back, did you feel like the cycle was closed or you like, no? I think I'm on a different journey.
1: At first I thought, okay, we're going to end it here. I still didn't quite know when in the beginning of the letter, how I was going to feel at the end. Sure. Okay. We've done this thing. I'm going to feel better about this. We can end this now. But as the letter went on, when I got to the end of it, he asked if I would be willing to speak with him on the phone. And if I would write my number back the next time, if I was, and that he understand, he would understand if I wasn't. And I I, I thought about it for a few days, but something inside of me said I needed to hear his voice. Like maybe I'm not done with this yet. Or I I didn't know whatever would come to fruitation with it, but I knew something was telling me that I I did not need to stop at that point in time. So I, I did allow him to call me and, man hearing his voice that first time that was it took me back but it knocked the air out of me for a few minutes but god I miss that voice now
3: I do the was it sounds like your husband was incredibly supportive how about the rest of your family that were all hurt by this man as well was there had they had already moved on or did you take the lead in helping this
1: so I thought that my mother and my aunt in particular would maybe be upset with me so I did tell them before I did it what I was going to do I don't think they would have stopped me (laughs) no matter what they said because I knew that I needed to Well, actually, I had already mailed it, excuse me, I had mailed it off already. So I hadn't gotten the note back, but I wanted them to know that I had. And come to find out, they forgave him about 10 years before I did. They had never tried to contact them. They didn't want to. They wanted at the time to see the execution go on because there was still tremendous anger for it. But as a human and as the person that he was, they had forgiven him years before I did joked I was like gosh you could have told me a long time ago there
3: there was a forgiveness club and I didn't get invited right like, um, hey
0: like you know
3: <laughs> I like forgiveness <laughs> yeah
1: it would, it would have been nice but the men in my family they they know what I've done especially what developed from it we have a we're going to res- respect each other to have our differences like we're going right. to
2: respect
1: each other or what is the saying you're going to agree to disagree
2: yeah
1: so and there was no ill will towards what i was doing but everybody is in a different
3: place yeah and i think that is the issue often in if i get on my soapbox again that I want to believe the best in myself and the worst in someone else. And if you give forgiveness, you, if I give forgiveness, it's because I'm compassionate and caring. If you, it's because you're weak and Mm -hmm. you don't, you never really cared about the person to begin with. And yeah, I think the better way to do it is we each have to go through our own journey. So when did you make the decision you wanted to see him in person?
1: I, because of the distance, because me still yeah. living in Maryland and sure. prison was, it was only a few miles away, I believe from the Florida line. So it was yeah. way down South. We communicated for almost three years, but just before his execution was when I saw him in person and I knew it was something I always wanted to do. He and I had talked about it through the years quite a few times. He'd always said, if I didn't feel comfortable enough going inside a prison like that alone, then he would understand. But that would have been, it was our way to finally close everything completely. There's something about the connection when you touch somebody and you hug somebody. That no matter how much you talk or communicate back and forth, that it's, it's very different when you can actually physically touch them again and see each other face to face. So it was something that was discussed, but up until a couple of days before I flew down and then flew into Huntsville and then drove down to South Alabama, I was still, is this the right thing to do? Was this going to hurt more? It was just very conflicting. The sure. whole process is very conflicting because I, I did not want him. I did not want him to be executed anymore. And there was nothing that I can do to stop it.
3: When did you make that decision that had you, have you always had a feeling about the death penalty or was this, as you got to know him, did your feelings change? What about this? Why did you not want him to be executed?
1: Honestly, up until I forgave him, I hated him so much. I was okay with it. I will say I was very naive to the whole process. Yeah. But I'm just being honest with you. I had so much hatred towards him that I was totally okay with that. But as I got to learn how people can change no matter what their actions were, that they can take steps even in the worst of conditions living in, and they can change and they can do something with their lives. And he was doing great things in there. We had no infractions whatsoever the entire time he was there. He found religion in a way that he said he started because he was bored, uh, just being being honest, and then it became something deep. And he truly changed and when I was able to see that somebody can do that I very quickly took the stance of where do we have the right to take that life then just because of something they they did one time when do we have that right to take their own life they have value they have value and they're loved by people he had a family that loves him I had come to love him tremendously like when is that okay? And when, sure. the, when the family doesn't want it, or the victim, like my mom and my aunt too, when they don't want it either, like when you say it's, I don't know. It's, it's a very touchy subject, but uh, something I'm becoming passionate for. I, really- yeah.
3: I remember I had a friend who's an attorney and he said, this is why we don't have families involved in the process because many people want revenge, not justice. And I realize that capital punishment is a very, not quite as bad as reproductive rights, but it is a hot button that a lot of people are very pro death penalty and executions and others are not. I live in Texas and it I think it's sad the amount of people that we put to death. I also and go ahead listeners if you want to skip ahead for a few minutes but I also when you read the studies about the inequity in of economic situations and uh, race relationships and this thing that it it is not a fair, equitable system. But I, I applaud you for giving that forgiveness and then making that known to people. I read that you actually had known his attorneys, and you. I guess let's skip ahead. He asked you to be there at his, when he was going to die, correct?
1: He left that open for my decision, yes, and I decided to.
3: Why? Was that a tough decision to make?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes, I've... Trying to take care of somebody else came back in. Yeah. I wanted to find, I wanted to provide him any sort of comfort and peace of whatever I could do by being there to try to make his transition as easiest on him as possible. No matter what that meant to myself.
3: But you also need to worry about your sobriety and your mental health. You don't want to the idea there's a reason why they tell us put our oxygen mask on first. You I'm sure you thought about all of that in the decision.
1: I had a long talk for almost a year, (laughs) but a whole lot within the last four to five months before with my therapist, with my sponsor, with my network, um, anybody that would listen to me, I needed to process this through. And I really just weighed the pros and cons. And ultimately I followed my heart. I knew that song letter to you came on at exactly when it was supposed to which led to me writing the letter which led to me following my gut to have a conversation with him i realized that everything was being laid out and so i knew that if i continued to follow my heart with it that i would go exactly where i was supposed to go so i had to silence my head long enough to hear that but I did. And I went with my gut and my heart and I knew that I would be upset with myself for one, if I didn't go to see him, I didn't know it would turn out like it did. I thought I'd see him for 20 minutes and be done. But I knew if I didn't see him, I would felt like I didn't have some sort of closure. I was missing something. And then I knew that if I look back later on, and I realized that I could have made that last moments of his life better but I wasn't there I would have been angry with myself too Mm -hmm. Um, and I I walked out of there changed I I did it absolutely changed me I walked out of there passionate about advocating and about speaking up and I I promised him that I would keep talking and I would keep sharing our story and I am putting my heart and soul into doing that Um,
3: I remember there was a movie years ago where Susan Sarandon played a nun and I think it was Sean Penn was Mm -hmm. a convict and she was there and she said, stare at me when it's happening. Stare at me. I want some of the last things you to see are someone with love in their eyes. Exactly. I think that's a wonderful blessing to give anyone, but much less someone with that history
1: and that's exactly what i wanted to do and that's exactly what happened too.
3: yeah
1: i hope i was that comfort and that peace that he needed before he closed his eyes I,
3: hope I, I yeah i i'm sure it is how are you doing since
1: i'm doing good it took i still have my moments where i still cry <laughs> they've I'm trying to process things this time and not just ignore them. So advocating is a lot of it has helped me heal. Writing what I just called in my journal entries, some of those things that have been posted, because that is how I started to get things out of my head. I needed to see them on paper. I needed to write all my pain out again, just like it all started. I needed to do it again. And that's how I started to process I didn't know they would be written in in some of the articles, but as uncomfortable as I am very shy, as uncomfortable as all that makes me, it comes back to my promise to Jimmy and also to the men inside that prison because they rallied behind me throughout the years and stuff for my son. Um, I can tell you, I honestly would have been able to walk inside that prison amongst all of them and felt totally safe. That's how close I got to those men. And those are the men that we're executing again. And, and that's all the part the process of me changing my ideas and my beliefs behind this is getting to know all of them. And I promise all of them that as my therapist says, I'm going to shake cages, knock on doors. I don't know. who who may hear me or who may need to hear this but whether it's the forgiveness piece whether it's the death penalty piece the redemption piece I don't know but I feel very strongly that there is something about this story that can help somebody else Um, and I just want it out there I promised him I would keep it going as long as I possibly can and like I said before I'm literally going to give it everything that I have to keep that going
3: And I feel like you are, and I'm glad to be a little part of that. One of the things we haven't talked about is there was one more Bruce moment in the, uh, on those last days. Tell me about that.
1: Oh. It was so amazing the visit. I saw him for seven hours total over two days and I wasn't alone. He had, his family was there. They let us all be together in a room and some of his church members. And on the last day, we, one of the church members got to bring a guitar in so we could sing some. And what turned out to be was one of the most magical couple of hours of my life and in that Bruce was there quite a few times so Jimmy and I kept sending each other songs throughout the years to listen to We could download them on his tablet and we would walk through them how it made us feel every single one was a Bruce song because that was our deep connection together and one of the songs that was the hardest for me to send him was Nebraska because of the subject obviously Sure, but I wanted to, it was, we had sent so much back and forth. Like I just, I wanted him to hear it again. And it was very hard. He told me later, he said that was the hardest one. He kept having to stop it and re- and listen to it again. And he ended up, and I did not know it at the time, he ended up memorizing it and he sang it to me and just to me out of everybody in that room, word for word, he sang that song to me. Uh, and it was one of the most meaningful moments in my life, because I knew the fear and the pain it took him to do that, but that was so special to the two of us. It was just a very special time. And then Bruce, during other songs, we were talking about his rendition of when the saints go marching in and how that was one of the most beautiful versions of that song we had ever heard. And that led to us playing that song And we started just dancing in the circle around the room with just so much joy and love. And Jimmy was just dancing like crazy. And we were all happy. Just this is the same day he's executed. And we were happy. And there were guards that started to cry when the warden came out and they were watching us through the windows, just in total awe, because not only was it the first time in that prison's history that a victim's family member had even come to see the convicted, but much less in the, the way that I did, and then have so much joy in that room at the same time. And it all kept coming back to Bruce. And oh, my gosh, the, I, I cannot tell that man <laughs> what he has done in my life. He's literally changed me with his music, and he has absolutely no idea. But my gosh, he has absolutely changed not only me; he changed Jimmy. Jimmy's family found forgiveness through my letters and my communications because they had cut him off for over yeah. eighteen years. They did. It just there was just so much beauty that all started with that one song. It just it amazes me to even think about it. <laughs>
3: In my letter to you, I took all my fears and doubts. In my letter to you, all the hard things I found out. In my letter to you, all that I found true. I sent it in my letter to you. It, it, It's mm. almost like it was written for this situation.
1: I felt it was. I still do. Yeah. I still do. But gosh, what it did to me that night. What it did to me that I, when I first heard it and everything that has come from it since, it just, it came from something greater than even Bruce. Yeah.
3: And one (laughs) of the other, I I, I thought it was eerie to think of doing Nebraska, but I also thought how touching that a guard said, can you guys do America? You're taking requests. Can you do Amazing Grace? Oh yeah. (laughs) Let's pass around the hat. But (laughs) as I said, I was raised in a Southern Baptist home. And when one of the scriptures write, if two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there also. And I am actually getting a little tears as we talk this. I absolutely feel the spirit was there that day, wasn't it?
1: Oh, you could you could literally feel it. He could literally feel it. It was so amazing. And when he led, he read his last words that day, he read them directly to me because he, w- he wasn't going to be allowed to have a piece of paper in the room. So he wanted to right. make sure that we heard it. And he gave it to me to take home too. Inside a box that the prisoners made me as a thank you for showing them that forgiveness and redemption is possible. So that's another thing that Bruce did. He literally showed an entire pod of death row prisoners in Alabama, that redemption and forgiveness is possible. Yeah. It was just so amazing because his brother was holding me and then his spiritual advisor. Like it was just, it was so amazing that they were leaning on me. But in here, this is their brother that is about to lose his life. But they just kept telling me like, we didn't have a brother until this happened. We didn't have him because they knew us too they knew my family too. And they were so just disgraced. His brother said by what he had done. And he said, I read your letter. He gave it to him for safekeeping. He said, I read your letter, Sarah. And he said, I literally asked myself, who am I to, who am I to be mad at this man anymore? Like I can have my brother back because of what you did. If you can man up, so to say, and you can approach him and you can do this, and I can too, and they had almost three years of having a beautiful relationship themselves, all because of that song. So it's absolutely amazing.
3: I often talk about that the this podcast is all about the power and the magic of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there's ever been a better example of this, that truly, you talk about the soundtrack of our lives, that's pretty powerful. So what's next for you, Sarah?
1: Oh, goodness. I decided to go back to school. Okay. I started school. next Actually, I start school next week. I want to do my social, master's in social work. I'm thinking about working in prisons. I want to keep helping the guys. But for right now, I'm just going to continue to get this story out there. I just feel like this is my calling right now. And I've gotten involved with the Holman prison where he was. And I still stay in contact with the men on death row through a board through it's called a project hope to abolish the death penalty in Alabama. And it's run by the men inside the prison with some of us on the outside helping right now. I'm just advocating, but I do everything gets sent to them. Just try to keep that hope alive for them and just try to keep advocating. I'm joining any group. (laughs) or an advisory board or anything i could get my hands on and right now that's just still me trying to heal where this goes from here i don't know yet but i know my trajectory in my life changed that day yeah when i lost him everything changed
3: that that is wonderful any final thoughts
1: yeah it's just thank you I really just, I don't have anything else to say right now, but thank you for allowing me to be on here and for sharing this.
3: All right. So I, I, listeners hang tight. I don't want to do a, I don't want you to get whiplash after such an emotional statement, but I got to ask a Mary question, Sarah. <laughs> I really do wow talk about for those of you who are listening to this podcast for the first time because of sarah's thank you for listening and let's make sure her story gets told to everywhere and if there's a connection somewhere to get this to bruce i know he would be very proud and and happy and blessed to do it but On a lighter note, Jay Armstrong was an honors English teacher in the Philadelphia area. He's now retired. But when he was teaching, he would give the lyrics to Thunder Road to his high school seniors. And they would bring, they would read the song. They would treat it as a poem. And they would ask the question, does Mary get in the car? Sarah, your Mm -hmm. question is, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road?
1: Every time I hear it in my mind, she does. (laughs) Who would not? But every single time I hear that song and that movie is playing in my head that Bruce can do so well, she's in it every single time.
3: I would have been shocked if you had, nope, nope. (laughs) She said no. She said no. Oh, Oh, no. (laughs) Sarah, thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself. And... I know you did not do this to try to be an inspiration. And in a lot of ways, sometimes doing things as a selfish act ends up being a blessing to more people than you could ever imagine. And I imagine I can only picture Sarah multiple years ago, sitting down and typing that letter I'm sure she would be shocked to know where that ultimately led, wouldn't she?
1: She she would never believe it. She would never believe it. The friendship too, just the friendship piece alone, much less anything else that has come of this. I literally, he was one of my best friends and I miss him. And who would have ever thought that I would be able to say that.
3: yeah it's amazing thank you for your time if someone wants to reach you what's the best way
1: Um, you can find me through facebook and then also on instagram and i'm on your pages so if you just look up under sarah gregory (laughs) i will you can
3: find me all right so so we're going to end with i'll see you in my dreams where all summers have come to an end I'll see you in my dreams. We'll meet and live and laugh again. I'll see you in my dreams. Yeah, up around the river bend. For death is not the end. And I will see you in my dreams. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And one day you will be back with him and your grandmother and all those we've lost. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, listeners. Be safe. Be kind. Find someone to forgive and it'll heal you Goodbye.
2: Well, I took all the sunshine and rain All my happiness and all my pain The dark evening stars and the morning sky of blue And I said it in my letter And I sent it in my letter to you.